top of page the stone alignments at Karnak in Brittany, dating from 2000 before Christ. Crude stones set upright in rows that are thought to have been used in sacred rituals and religious processions. Below, rough stones resting on raked sand in a Zen Buddhist rock garden in the Ryuanji Temple, Japan. Though apparently haphazard, the stone's arrangement in fact expresses a highly refined spirituality. Sacred symbols, the stone and the animal. The history of symbolism shows that everything can assume symbolic significance. Natural objects like stones, plants, animals, men, mountains and valleys, sun and moon, wind, water and fire. Or man-made things like houses, boats or cars. Or even abstract forms, like numbers or the triangle, the square and the circle. In fact, the whole cosmos is a potential symbol. Man, with his symbol-making propensity, unconsciously transforms objects or forms into symbols, thereby endowing them with great psychological importance, and expresses them in both his religion and his visual art. The intertwined history of religion and art reaching back to prehistoric times is a record that our ancestors have left off the symbols that were meaningful and moving to them. Even today, as modern painting and sculpture show, the interplay of religion and art is still alive. For the first part of my discussion of symbolism in the visual arts, I intend to examine some of the specific motifs that have been universally sacred or mysterious to man. Then, for the remainder, re remainder remainder of the chapter, I wish to discuss the phenomenon of 20th century art, not in terms of its use in symbols, but in terms of its significance as a symbol itself, a symbolic expression of the psychological condition of the modern world. In the following pages I have chosen three recurring motifs which, with which to illustrate the presence and nature of symbolism in the art of many different periods. These are the symbols of the stone, the animal and the circle, each of which has had enduring psychological significance from the earliest expressions of human consciousness to the most sophisticated forms of 20th century art. Left a prehistoric menhir, a rock that has been slightly carved into a female form, probably a mother goddess. Right, a sculpture by Max Ernst, born 1891, has also hardly altered the natural shape of the stone. We know that even unhewn stones had a slightly symbolic meaning for ancient and primitive societies. Rough natural stones were often believed to be the dwelling places of spirits or gods and were used in primitive cultures as tombstones, boundary stones or objects of religious veneration. Their use may be regarded as a primeval form of sculpture, a first attempt to invest the stone with more expressive power than chance and nature could give it. The Old Testament story of Jacob's dream 
is a typical example of how thousands of years ago men felt that a living god or a divine spirit was embodied in the stone and how the stone became a symbol. And Jacob went towards Haran, and he lied upon a certain place and tarried there all night, because the sun was set, and he took of the stones of the place and put them for his pillows, and lay down in the, that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, <coughs> and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And Jacob awoke, awoke out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid, and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. For Jacob, the stone was an integral part of the revelation. It was the mediator between himself and God. <coughs> In many primitive stone sanctuaries, the deity is represented not by a single stone, but by a great many unhewn stones arranged in distinct patterns. The geometrical stone alignments in Brittany and the stone circle at Stonehenge are famous examples. Arrangements of rough natural stones also play a considerable part in the highly civilized rock gardens of Zen Buddhism. Their arrangement is not geometrical, but seems to have come about by pure chance. In fact, however, it is the expression of a most refined spirituality. Very early in history, men began trying to express what they felt to be the soul or spirit of a rock by working it into a recognizable form. In many cases, the form was a more or less definite approximation to the human figure. For instance, the ancient meniers with their crude outlines of, or, of faces, or the herme that developed out of boundary stones in ancient Greece, or the many primitive stone idols with human features. The animation of the stone must be explained as the projection of a more or less distinct content of the unconscious into the stone. The primitive tendency to give merely a hint of a human figure and to retain much of the stone's natural form can also be seen in modern sculpture. Many examples show the artist's concern with the self-expression of the stone. To use the language of myth, the stone is allowed to speak for itself. This can be seen, for instance, in the work of the Swiss sculptor Hans Eschbacher, the American sculptor, sculptor James Rosati, and the German-born artist Max Ernst. In a letter from Maloja in 1935, Ernst wrote, Alberto, the Swiss artist Giacometti, and I are afflicted with sculpturists. 
We work on granite boulders, large and small, from the moraine of the Forno glacier. Wonderfully polished by time, frost and weather, they are in themselves fantastically beautiful. No human hand can do that, so why not leave the spadework to the elements and confine ourselves to scratching on them the runes of our own mystery? What Ernst meant by mystery is not explained, but later in this chapter I shall try to show that the mysteries of the modern artist are not very different from those of the old masters who knew the spirit of the stone. The emphasis on this spirit is much sculpture, in much sculpture, is one indication of the shifting indefinable borderline between religion and art. Sometimes one cannot be separated from the other. The same ambivalence can also be seen in another symbolic motif, as it appears in age-old works of art, the symbol of the animal. Animal pictures go back to the Ice Age, between 60,000 and 10,000 BC. They were discovered on the walls of caves in France and Spain at the end of the last century, but it was not until early in the present century that archaeologists began to realize their extreme importance and to inquire into their meaning. These inquiries revealed an infinitely remote prehistoric culture whose existence had never even been suspected. Even today a strange magic seems to haunt the caves that contain the rock engravings and paintings. According to the German art historian, historian Herbert Kuhn, Kuhn, inhabitants of the areas in Africa, Spain, France, and Scandinavia, where such, painting, where, where such paintings are found, could not be induced to go near the caves. A kind of religious awe, or perhaps a fear of spirits hovering among the rocks and the paintings, held them back. Passing nomads still lay their votive offerings before the old rock paintings in North Africa. In the 15th century, Pope Calixtus II prohibited religious ceremonies in the cave with the horse pictures. Which cave the people meant is not known, but there can be no doubt that it was a cave of the Ice Age containing animal pictures. All this goes to prove that the caves and rocks with the animal paintings have always been instinctively felt to be what they originally were, religious places. The numen of the place has outlived the centuries. In a number of caves, the modern visitor must travel through low, dark and damp passages till he reaches the point where the great painted chambers suddenly open out. This arduous approach may express the desire of the primitive man to safeguard from common sight all that was contained and went on in the caves and to protect their mystery. The sudden and unexpected sight of the paintings in the chambers coming after the difficult and awe-inspiring approach must have made an overwhelming impression of, on primitive men. The Paleolithic cave paintings consist almost entirely of figures of animals whose movements and postures have been observed in nature and rendered with great artistic skill. There are, however, many details that show 
that the figures were intended to be something more than naturalistic reproductions. Kuenur writes, the strange thing is that a good many primitive paintings have been used as targets. At Montespan there is an engraving, engraving of a horse that is being driven into a trap. It is pitted with the marks of missiles. A clay model of a bear in the same cave has 42 holes. These pictures suggest a hunting magic like that still practiced today by hunting tribes in Africa. The painted animal has the function of a double, by its symbolic slaughter. The hunters attempt to anticipate and ensure the death of the real animal. This is a form of sympathetic magic, which is based on the reality of a double represented in a picture. What happens to the picture will happen to the original. The underlying psychological fact is a strong identification between a living being and its image, which is considered to be the being's soul. This is one reason why a great many primitive people today will shrink from being photographed. Other cave pictures must have served magic fertility rites. They show animals at the moment of mating. An example can be seen in the figures of a male and female bison in the Duc Lou Dubert cave in France. Lou Dubert. Thus, the realistic pictures of the animal, the picture of the animals, was enriched by overtones of magic and took on a symbolic significance. It became the image of the living essence of the animal. The most interesting figures in the cave paintings are those of semi-human beings in animal disguise, which are sometimes to be found besides the animals. In the Trois Frères caves, cave in France, a man wrapped in an animal hide is playing a primitive flute as if he meant to put a spell on the animals. In the same cave there is a dancing human being with antlers, a horse's head and bear's paws. This figure dominating a medley of several hundred animals is unquestionably the lord of the animals. The customs and usages of some primitive African tribes today can throw some light on the meaning of these mysterious and doubtless symbolic figures. In initiations, secret societies and even the institution of monarchy in these tribes, animals and animal disguises often play an important part. The king and chief are animals too, generally lions or leopards. Vestiges of this custom may still be dis discerned in the title of the Emperor of Ethiopia. Hail, Seles, the Lion of Judah, or the honorific name of Dr. Hastings Banda, the Lion of Nyasaland. The further back we go in time, or the more primitive and close to nature the society is, the more literally such titles must be taken. A primitive chief is not only disguised as the animal when he appears in, at initiation rites in full animal disguise, he is the animal. Still more, he is an animal spirit, a terrifying demon who performs circumcision. At such moments he incorporates or represents the ancestor of the tribe and the clan and therefore the primal god himself. 
He represents and is the totem animal. Thus we probably should not go far wrong in seeing in the figure of the dancing animal man in the Trois Frères cave a kind of chief who has been transformed by his disguise into an animal demon. Left, a prehistoric painting from Trois Frères cave includes lower right corner, a human figure, perhaps a shaman, with horns and hoofs. As an example of animal dances, right, a Burmese buf buffalo dance in which must dancers are possessed by the buffalo spirit. In the course of time, the complete animal disguise was, was superseded in many places by animal and demon must. Primitive men lavished all their, their artistic skill on these masks, and many of them are still unsurpassed in the power and intensity of their expression. They are often the objects of the same veneration as the god or demon himself. Animal masks play a part in the folk acts of many modern countries like Switzerland or in the magnificently expressive mass of the ancient Japanese no drama, which is still performed in modern Japan. The symbolic function of the mask is the same as that of the original animal disguise. Individual human expression is submerged, but in its place the wearer assumes the dignity and the beauty and also the horrifying expression of an animal demon. In psychological terms, the mask transforms its wearer into an archetypal image. Dancing, which was originally nothing more than a completion of the animal disguise by appropriate movements and gestures, was probably supplementary to the initiation or other rites. It was, so to speak, performed by demons in honor of a demon. In the soft clay of the Tuc d'Odobert cave, Herbert Kuhn found footprints that led round animal figures. They show that dancing was part of even the Ice Age rites. Only heel prints can be seen, Kuhn writes. The dancers had moved like bisons. Bisons. Bisons, whatever. They had danced a bison dance for the fertility and increase of the animals and for their slaughter. In his introductory chapter, Dr. Jung has pointed out the close relation or even identification between the native and his total an totem animal or bush soul. There are special ceremonies for the establishment of this relationship, especially the initiation rites for boys. The boy enter, enters into possession of his animal soul and at the same time sacrifices his own animal being by circumcision. This dual process admits him to the totem clan and establishes his relationship to his totem animal. Above all, above all he becomes a man and, in a still wider sense, a human being. East Coast Africans described the uncircumcised as animals. They have neither received an animal soul nor sacrificed their animality. In other words, since neither the human nor the animal aspect of an uncircumcised boy's soul has become conscious, his animal aspect was regarded as dominant. 
The animal motif is usually symbolic of man's primitive and instinctual nature. Even civilized men must realize the violence of their instinctual drives and their powerlessness in the face in face of autonomous emotions erupting from the unconscious. This is still more the case with primitive men whose consciousness is not highly developed and who are still less well equipped to weather the emotional storm. In the first chapter of this book, when Dr. Jung is discussing the ways in which men developed the power of of reflection, he takes an example of an African who fell into a rage and killed his beloved little son. When the man recovered himself, he was overwhelmed with grief and remorse for what he had done. In this case, a negative impulse broke loose and did its deadly work regardless of the conscious will. The animal demon is highly expressive symbol for such an impulse. The vividness and concreteness of the image enables man to establish a relationship with it as a representative of the overwhelming power in himself. He fears it and seeks to propitiate it by sacrifice and ritual. A large number of myths are concerned with a primal animal, which must be sacrificed in, in in the cause of fertility or even creation. One example of this is the sacrifice of a bull by the Persian sun god Mithras, from which sprang the earth with all wealth and fruitfulness. In the Christian legend of Saint George slaying the dragon, the primeval rite of sacrificial slaughter again appears. In the religions and religious art of practically every race, animal attributes are ascribed to the supreme gods, or the gods are represented as animals. The ancient Babylonians translated their gods into the heavens in the shape of the ram, the bull, the crab, the lion, the scorpion, the fish, and so on, the signs of the zodiac. The Egyptians represented the goddess Hathor as cow-headed, the god Amon as ram-headed, and Thoth as ibis-headed, or in the shape of a baboon. Ganesh, the Hindu god of good fortune, has a human body but the head of an elephant, Vishnu is a boar, Hanuman is an ape god, etc. The Hindus, incidentally, do not assign the first place in the hierarchy of being to man. The elephant and lion stand higher. Greek mythology is full of animal symbolism. Zeus, the father of the gods, often appears, approaches a girl whom he desires in the shape of a swan, a bull or an eagle. In Germanic mythology, the cat is sacred to the goddess Freya, while the boar, the raven and the horse are sacred to Wotan. Even in Christianity, the animal symbolism plays a surprisingly great part. Three of the evangelists have animal emblems. Saint Luke has the ox, Saint Mark the lion and Saint John the eagle. Only one, Saint Matthew, is represented as a man or as an angel. Christ himself symbolically appears as the Lamb of God or the fish, but he is also the serpent exalted on the cross, the lion, and in rarer cases, the unicorn. 
These animal attributes of Christ indicate that even the Son of God, the supreme personification of man, can no more dispense with his animal nature than with his higher spiritual nature. The subhuman as well as the superhuman is felt to belong to the realm of the divine. The relationship of these two aspects of man is beautifully symbolized in the Christian's pictures, picture of the birth of Christ in a stable, along animals. The boundless profusion of animal symbolism in the religion and art of all times does not merely emphasize the importance of the symbol. It shows how vital it is for men to integrate into their lives the symbol's psychic content, instinct. In itself, an animal is neither good nor evil. It is a piece of nature. It cannot desire anything that is not in its nature. To put this another way, it obeys its instincts. These instincts often seem mysterious to us, but they have their parallel in human life. The foundation of human nature is instinct. But in man, the animal being, which lives in him as his instinctual psyche, may become dangerous if it's not recognized and integrated in life. Man is the only creature with the power to control instinct by his own will, but he is also able to surpass, distort and wound it. And an animal, to speak metaphorically, is never so wild and dangerous as when it is wounded. Suppressed instincts can gain control of a man, they can even destroy him. The familiar dream in which the dreamer is pursued by an animal nearly always indicates that an instinct has been split off from the consciousness and ought to be, or is trying to be, readmitted and integrated into life. The more dangerous the behavior of the animal in the dream, the more unconscious is the primitive and instinctual soul of the dreamer, and the more imperative is its integration into his life if some irreparable evil is to be forestalled. Suppressed and wounded instincts are the dangers threatening civilized men. Uninhibited drives are the dangers threatening primitive men. In both cases, the animal is alienated from its true nature, and for both, the acceptance of the animal soul is the condition for wholeness and a fully lived life. Primitive man must tame the animal in himself and make it his helpful companion. Civilized man must heal the animal in himself and make it his friend. Other contributors to this book have discussed the importance of the stone and animal motifs in terms of dream and myth. I have used them here only as, a general, as general examples of the appearance of such living symbols throughout the history of art, and especially religious art. Let us now examine, in the same way, a most powerful and universal symbol, the circle. Thank you for listening.